They have killed at least 100 million human beings out of the womb, and they claim they've killed 400 million still in the womb. This is unprecedented in the terms of man's inhumanity to man. Frank Gaffney is the executive chairman of the Center for Security Policy and co-author of the new report, the CCP is at war with America. It breaks down the Chinese regime's global ambitions and the ways in which it conducts unrestricted warfare against the United States. Once it was out of the laboratory, whether by accident or unleashed purposefully, what we know happened is that the Chinese Communist Party deliberately, purposefully, and malevolently released it on the rest of the world. And I was there in the Pentagon at the height of the Cold War. My job was dealing with the Soviet nuclear threat. And I'm telling you, it was nothing compared to what we now face in terms of the comprehensive threat from the Chinese Communist Party. And yet we have persisted in this delusion that they're not at war with us. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Frank Gaffney, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. I want to say not only is it a pleasure to be with you, but I think what you're doing with this program is of surpassing importance, and it is a real privilege to be able to contribute to it again. Well, that's wonderful. I'll have to ask you uh, later why why you think that exactly, aside from being on the show itself. But um, let, let, let's jump to talking about your new book, your new report. You have a book in your hand, The CCP is at War with America. You just published it. It's essentially a report, you know, and the Subtitle is quite provocative. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party's COVID-19 biological warfare attack. And what's next? At a critical moment in the Cold War, back in 1976, a group of people were brought in to the Central Intelligence Agency under the rubric of something that was called at the time Team B. And the idea was to get a second opinion on the advisability of what was then known as detente with the then existential threat to freedom known as the Soviet Union. Detente was another form, French word for engagement. The idea was to have these experts look at all of the classified information and say, is this advisable? And they did, and they came away saying, this is not only not advisable, this is a formula for our destruction because the Soviet Union is our mortal enemy. It is building up while we disarm. It is a danger that we cannot continue to facilitate by detente. That turned into a group called the Committee on the Present Danger, one of whose members was a fellow by the name of Ronald Reagan, who was then preparing for his second run for the presidency and asked that group to help him put together a strategy, not for continuing to have detente with the Soviets, not to even coexist with the Soviets, but to roll them back. The strategy was something that he then ran on in 1980 and got a mandate to implement, which he did, and the rest, as they say, is history. Flash forward. We put together what we call Team B3. We did another one in 2010 about Sharia. But this was Team B3, was to get a second opinion on the official line that the intelligence community just couldn't tell what was the provenance of this so-called SARS-CoV-2 virus. We had serious people, members of our Team B panel, including Dr. Stephen Hatfill, 
arguably the country's preeminent expert on virology and certainly biological warfare. And we looked at all of the evidence and we found none that it came out of natural sources. None. And a lot of, yes, circumstantial evidence, because that's all we've got, but nonetheless circumstantial evidence that came out of a biological warfare facility in Wuhan, China called the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We don't know how it got out of that laboratory, but that it was manufactured in that laboratory I think is really beyond dispute at this point as a biological warfare agent. Not a particularly virulent one, by the way, certainly compared to a lot of other stuff that's being cooked up in that laboratory, especially with the help of Dr. Fauci and our gain-of-function research and financing, which helped produce this virus, by the way. But our Team B3 said once it was out of the laboratory, whether by accident or unleashed purposefully, what we know happened is that the Chinese Communist Party deliberately, purposefully, and malevolently released it on the rest of the world. As you know, they were locking down Wuhan for internal travel, but they facilitated that travel. In fact, I'm, Dr. Hatfield has said he's got sources who've told him they actually were subsidizing elderly people from Wuhan to go to the United States to see their family. So, we believe, and have said, that makes the COVID-19 pandemic a biological warfare attack against the United States and the rest of the world, but particularly the United States. And tragically, what at the very least it has done is it's been a proof of concept for the Chinese Communist Party about what has, we believe, been their larger purpose for decades, which is to develop an illegal biological warfare capability to depopulate the United States so that it could be colonized by communist China. And the source for that is not our speculation or analysis of the available evidence. It is a secret speech that I believe Epic Times brought to public attention, made by a fellow by the name of Chi Hao Chen, General Chi Hao Chen, who was at the time the Defense Minister of China in the early 2000s. And Chi Hao Chen was speaking very candidly to a party cadre cohort about, among other things, the war they were engaged in with the United States and their ultimate objective, which is to destroy it so that China could become rightfully, once again, the center of the universe, the Middle Kingdom, the world dominant power. And that is the war that they've been waging against us for over two decades. Unrestricted warfare, as you know, people's war declared in May of 2019, and shortly thereafter, biological warfare against the United States, now giving rise to the present pass, which is when it may go fully kinetic over Taiwan and other reasons. Okay, so you've raised about 15 things we have to follow up. First of all, um, it's 100% the case that the Chinese Communist Party has an active biological warfare program. That's beyond dispute. Just in case anyone watching, I just wanted to, to, to say that. And it is illegal. 
they have a treaty obligation not to have such a capability in the, to the uh, Biological uh, Weapons Convention. Essentially, the, the, the policy, internal policy, is to have everything possible be this kind of dual use. So if you have, right, so if you're creating, you have a Wuhan Institute of Virology, let's say you're doing you know, vaccine research, one of the theories about what the virus was, if it were, for example, a mistake, an accidental release was that it was some kind of vaccine research, you know, genetic modification of a coronavirus that then That's got out. That's Tony Fauci's right. line. Right. Mm -hmm. And then if... Uh, at the same time, it would be extremely hard to believe that an operation that was doing that kind of research, gain of what we call gain-of-function research, which, by the way, I'm very happy to see Congress and the Senate, Senator Ron Paul just had the first major hearing on this issue and trying to alert people uh, how to actually, you know, understand what this stuff is by some of the country's experts. Um, you know, it's ma making viruses more lethal, more virulent, uh, more deadly, so in theory, so you can figure out how to fight against them, but you're still doing that oh. in the process. The other use is to more efficiently kill people. Of course, mm -hmm. of course, and, it's, and of course. Without destroying the infrastructure, and that's a point to which we might return as well. Right, so then this doctrine of unrestricted warfare, right? So there were two Chinese colonels that wrote a detailed book of how to wage war against the United States using methods that don't you don't conventionally think of as military methods. Okay. In 1999, yeah. they published this book, obviously with the permission of the Chinese Communist Party. They both, by the way, went on to general officer rank, so it wasn't as though these were, you know, radical outliers who were repudiated by the party. They were laying out the plan. And more to the point, what they did was they said, we're not strong enough to use military force at the moment. But these are the ways we can conduct warfare against the United States decisively. Well, and, and perhaps even more importantly, I don't know if all of the methods, but the vast majority of the methods they describe, for example, using financial instruments, right, to subvert America, have been implemented. And enable the like, Chinese Communist Party's program right, of right. unrestricted well, but, warfare. But this is, but this is, this is kind of the, the point. Like, if you look at, the proof is in the pudding. You look at that book and you're like, hey, pretty much all of this is kind of being done. Right? Has happened. Right, right, exactly. Including so. biological warfare, which was one of the things that was identified as an unrestricted warfare technique that could be used against the United States. I remember when there were this, this, these discussions of, you know, trying to stop close the borders and so forth, there was a you know huge outcry from the Chinese Communist Party. It was racist, it was everything else, right? So they kind of, again, using this unconventional, unrestricted warfare, knowing the soft spots in America, knowing what buttons to push to, to get what you want. Right? Let our people in so that we can essentially inseminate into your society this deadly virus. Not as deadly as they've got in their kit, to be sure, but deadly enough to have killed, we're told, a million Americans to this point and many millions others elsewhere around the world. So one of the things in the report that you put together, which I think is incredibly valuable, and again, it bears sort of, uh, I guess, a quick overview, right, is, is some of these methodologies, right? Like, for example, there's something, um, I don't know this is so much a uh, methodology, or a, but a rather... Uh, uh, a whole organization called the United Front, or originally United Front Work Department, 
And so this is this, uh, the, these means that the CCP uses to influence overseas, both Chinese communities, of course, by extension, you know, people overseas. And of course, there's Chinese every, all overseas everywhere. And the CCP tries to keep a very, very firm hand of influence among those people through various official organizations. So, I mean, that's just one piece. Like but the Ministry of State Security, for example. Right, 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 exactly. <laughs> Your but parents maybe, will be punished if you don't do what we tell you to do, right, that sort of thing. Right. Well, and also the other side is the knowledge that if you do cooperate, if you do provide tidbits of information, because this is how the CCP does its intelligence gathering, little, you know, uh, millions of nugget, small nuggets of information that are then assembled, right? Um, you know you'll get benefits, and if you surprisingly don't provide nuggets, well, that, why aren't you providing those nuggets, right? So, Well, you may yeah. be punished. Exactly. You, may, you may be physically threatened, in fact, if right. you really are considered to be a problem in this country. They right. will reach out and touch you. But as you know, the easier way to do this is simply to coerce your family members who are still back in the homeland. So, so tell me a little bit more about these. I mean, I, I, I keep having the United Front on my mind because I keep seeing its influence in various forms. Um, like, I'll just, to, to give a, another example, the Confucius Institutes, right? Ostensibly, many of them shut down. That was great effort. But it, you know, turns out with a little more research that was being done uh, that, that they were just kind of renamed as something else. And the money was funneled in a slightly different way, but it's still there, and that influence still exists in the U.S. Brought much more broadly than even we realized. We just did a, a, a webinar, and I, I would really commend to your viewers um, uh, as a resource our website at the Committee on the Present Danger China, presentdangerchina.org. We do two weekly webinars of two different series. The first was one started about three months ago, I think now, which is detailing the unrestricted warfare, the various forms it is taking, how it is being weaponized, and the effects it's having on our country. It's powerful, it's chilling, really, especially taken together. The other series is what we call the USA Betrayed series. And it's looking at the help that Americans are giving to the Chinese in waging this warfare against us. And the last one, most recent one, was on the Confucius Institutes, as it happens, because of the help that academia is giving. And you're absolutely right. And I had no idea. I think of the 114 Confucius Institutes, 108 of them had been closed, thanks in no small measure to our friend Rochelle Peterson and the National Association of Scholars' work. And they're all back. Maybe not all of them, but many of them are back, and they've just rebranded them. But the same objective is being used, which is, yes, influence operation, recruitment, subversion, and essentially control of these campuses. And we talked about how the curriculum is being dictated, the people doing the teaching of the curriculum is being dictated, the people visiting the campus as speakers are being dictated, among many other things, by the Chinese Communist Party. This is insane. And there is, by the way, absolutely no reciprocity. We have no such opportunities to propagandize or do anything else, educate people in China. Tell me some more of these instruments that the CCP uses, both internally and globally. And like, Well, you, you touched on the most important one, I think, with the arguable exception of biological warfare that's killed a million Americans. Their focus on recruiting 
what has been called the old friends on Wall Street, has been incalculably important to the Chinese Communist Party's whole agenda because it has enabled them to have us bankroll their unrestricted warfare against us, among many other things. I mean, you go through the litany of horribles of what they're up to. Uh, Things, for example, like the Belt and Road Initiative. They're making these payday loans that are, in fact, colonizing at my last count, something like 145 countries around the world, paying for infrastructure to be built with their financing, which then winds up being something that, like payday loans... With, with loans that will never be paid back, can't which be then paid default back, to ownership Which by means the foreclosure on the assets, which means that you have now colonial presence and, as you say, dual-use power projection options worldwide. That money, a good part of it at least, I think, is coming from the three, the estimates vary, three to six trillion dollars, trillion dollars, that has been moved by Wall Street, their old friends there, Larry Fink of BlackRock being a prime mover in this, from China, from, excuse me, the American investing public pension funds, 401k plans, exchange-traded funds, index funds, mutual funds, and the like, from America, from patriotic investment purposes and others, to our mortal enemy, the Chinese Communist Party. This is continuing. Larry Fink, not so long ago, said we ought to triple the amount of investment we're making there. And this is essentially, I think, the United Front or the Ministry of State Security or the Chinese Communist Party, the People's Liberation Army, whoever you want to say is running this thing, it is of immense help to them in enabling them to try to destroy our country. And it has to stop. Well, and there's this other element that, you know, frankly, many people don't realize. They imagine that money is kind of interchangeable, right? So, but the, the thing is, once that money goes into China, that money is very, very hard to get out. Right. In fact, when people try, it's it's almost impossible. So it kind of exists on paper for the companies that are doing the investing, but they don't actually have it. They don't have it, certainly in the form of actual shares of the companies they're investing in. Some of which, by the way, have been sanctioned by the United States government, either because they are directly involved in the military threat buildup from China or humanitarian abominations that the Chinese Communist Party and genocide and organ harvesting and all the rest. But notwithstanding the fact that they're sanctioned by the government, it's still possible to invest in them. The problem is you can't actually own a piece of the company for whatever that's worth. You get a share in some virtual entity in the Cayman Islands, which gives you no recourse at all when, and not if, when, the Chinese simply say, sorry, you've just lost your money. (laughs) We've just closed that company or we've just turned it into something else. And that's without what's coming, Jan. If we are actually, no kidding, at war with China, those three to six trillion dollars are written off. They're just gone. And the people who will be affected 
will not be so much Larry Fink or Ray Dalio or Steve Schwartzman or any of these other masters of the universe on Wall Street. They'll be Americans, American pensioners. And now they've gotten their mitts on, if you can believe this, federal government employees, military as well as civilian. They're moving their money into companies that are building weapon systems with which to kill those men and women in uniform. And Wall Street sees no problem with this. They say, well, as long as it's not illegal, we're going to continue to do it. What about betraying your country? What about contributing to its destruction? Do you have no interest? Do you have no concern? Do you have no responsibility to avoid that? I think they do. I think if they don't, I think if they persist in it, it is treason, for God's sake. And it ought to be treated as such. The CCP certainly knew how to take advantage of our greed, right? Well, we make no secret of our greed, so <laughs> it's just a question of, you know, playing, <clears throat> playing to those human frailties. But they do it systematically. They've made it into an industrial operation. And, it, you know, Peter Schweitzer's book about red-handed is just the latest documentation of how they have perfected the practice of what they call elite capture. And it's not just Wall Street, sadly. It's not even just the business sector, because there's a lot of people importing goods from China that, again, help prop up the regime. It's academia, as we said. It's the Confucius Institute's patrons who like all that money coming in from all those students, 300,000 plus, that are paying full freight at our universities. That's, you know, that matters to these colleges. Hollywood, the media. Again, coming back to what I started with, one of the reasons why Epic Times is, I believe, the best media outfit in America today is most of the rest have been corrupted by the Chinese Communist Party. They, they are paid to put their propaganda in their papers or in their outlets. I mean, in many cases, officially. Well, and, absolutely. And, but there's also these tools, to speak of these tools, right? It's, I mean, it was the same thing in the Soviet Union. For You had to make some agreements, and this is a, frankly a difficult thing for a journalist. To get in to a regime, you have to make some agreements with them to play along, or they just well, won't let you in, so what like do you academia, do? It's like academia, visas and so on. Here's the thing. You made the comparison to the Soviet Union. I started with this riff about, you know, the Soviet threat. And what Reagan did in response to it, that was such a departure from what had been done by Nixon and Ford before him, and Carter, which was, to, well, just see what we could do to make the best deal with them that we possibly could, because they were the rising power, Kissinger and, you know, Graham Allison and these likes had claimed that, no, we had no choice but to submit. They were pikers, the Soviets, compared to the Chinese Communist Party. The threat that they represented to us, and I was there in the Pentagon, at the height of the Cold War. My job was dealing with the Soviet nuclear threat, and I'm telling you, it was nothing, nothing, compared to what we now face in terms of the comprehensive threat. Nuclear, by the way, among others from the Chinese Communist Party. And yet we have persisted in this delusion that they're not at war with us or that, for heaven's sakes, we can continue to do business with them, we can engage with them, we can prop them up, we can enrich them, we can make them more powerful, we can make them more dangerous without 
any danger to ourselves. It is madness. So that's where Team B3 comes in. What we're trying to do with this report now is to not see it just put on red on dusty shelves all over Washington and elsewhere, but rather to give it a living legacy with what we call the brief, which is something you've seen, and it's not terribly complicated. It just is a rendering of what it means that the people that we are now dealing with treat their own people horribly in every imaginable way. And I'm not just talking about the Uyghurs or the Tibetans or others that they consider to be inferior races. I'm talking about what they do to Han Chinese as well, by the millions. I mean, as you know, they have killed at least 100 million human beings out of the womb, and they claim they've killed 400 million still in the womb. This is unprecedented in the terms of man's inhumanity to man in the course of human history. It's a tell, and I know we agree feverishly about this. None of these people that they're doing business with should be under any illusion, the non-Chinese, including the Americans. If they succeed in securing victory over us and enslave us, I'm not even saying killing us off, but enslave us, do we have really any illusion that they will treat us better than they treat their own people? Generally, the world agrees at this point that, that there's at least one genocide, which is, you know, a deliberate eradication of a group of people for the purpose of eradicating those people. I mean, that's a very, very short form def definition, but that's basically genocide, that, that the CCP is engaged in this practice. I would say there's at Our least three. government under yeah. both Republican and Democratic administrations has officially said that about right, the Uyghurs right. and other ethnic minorities. Well, no, exactly. And so, so why do you think that in doing business with you, the ethics of the regime will be different? Look, the answer to the question, and I know it's somewhat rhetorical, but the people who are doing business with China and in the process enriching and propping them up and enabling them, empowering them, emboldening them, are making a very cynical calculation that they personally will be enriched for whatever time they're doing that work. And unfortunately, the Chinese play that game. They do enrich those who play along. But they also, to your question about enslaving, they also use increasingly coercive techniques to make you do things that you don't want to do. Like, you know, selling your proprietary seed corn technology, for example, and putting your company ultimately out of business because they've supplanted you. I just saw a headline this morning that uh, Apple will no longer label its products as made in Taiwan for fear of offending. They're easily offended. They're easily offended, but the, the behavior is offensive in itself. It's called kowtowing, as you know, in the ancient tradition of prostrating yourself before the empire. And, and one of the points, and I know you understand this, and I, I know you've talked about it a lot with your guests, and thankfully so. But here we have the Chinese Communist Party using cultural Marxist techniques, not class warfare, but race warfare, 
through their united front work department operations with allies like Black Lives Matter and academics at Harvard and elsewhere who are promoting critical race theory, certainly the most racist regime in the world today, is in China. It's Han supremacism. The racism that they're exhibiting towards black people that they're now colonizing in Africa, for example, is is causing more and more Africans who are being, yes, enslaved by them. I'm often surprised how few people make the connection. Again, the eradication of an ethnic group of people is the most extreme form of racism that exists. And we all agree in a highly bipartisan fashion that the CCP is doing that. Where are the people who, in the past, rightly abhorred apartheid in South Africa? Who, who claim that Israel is now engaged in apartheid, who are so quick to say there's white supremacists everywhere and they are, you know, brutalizing blacks and Latinos and other. Where are those people when you talk about Han supremacism and the fact that people are not simply being deprived of certain liberties or allowed to move about the country or have certain jobs or what, but are being murdered en masse? Something I've come to realize, Frank, is that, you know, as human beings, we have, you know, there's this sort of inherent kind of tribalism that we're drawn to somehow. It's part of our nature, I suppose, right? And what the CCP does is it plays on the worst elements of that. Like, for example, this Hans Brim, there's, you know, I, as you know, I work with many Chinese and I can tell you that, that I, I, do, I don't encounter it among the people I work with, right? I don't encounter that. I've also been in situations where um, I was running a youth exchange program and, you know, a, a Chinese girl uh, basically cried when she found out that she would have a black counterpart in the program that we have. It was, it was, it was crushing. We had, to, we had to figure out how to deal with this bizarre cultural situation, but this is precisely because of sort of promoting the worst aspects of, of, of human nature yes. and bringing those out. And this is something I, I'm terrified of. I believe that we are not at war with the Chinese people. I believe that the Chinese people are industrious, they're creative, they are highly capable. We see that among the communities that have come here, among others. But having said that, we have to acknowledge a horrible reality, and that is that for 70 years, this terrible party, this totalitarian system has been, used, has been using every imaginable technique to brainwash their people, to indoctrinate them, to penalize them or reward them for hewing to the party line. And the party line is, among other things, Han supremacist, racist, culturally, ethnically, in every other imaginable way. And that's part of building up this narrative and this China dream, if you will, that China must rule the rest of the world. It's easier if you realize that everybody else is inferior and 
there to do your work, your enslaved populations in I the future. I wanted to ask you, because this is something, you know, we talked about a couple of years back on the show, and it's the basically repatriation, the necessity of repatriation of supply chains, because so many of our supply chains uh, were connected with the Chinese Communist Party, right? And they would be these overtures about suddenly stopping the flow of rare earths, for example, and what that would that would devastate, you know, the kind of the the silicon the industry around which they silicon did to Valley. Japan a few years right. back. Right. Well, exactly. I was sent around this uh, video of, you know, it was basically created to make fun of then-President Trump. He was at the UN, he was telling the Germans, you're, you're putting yourself in a very difficult situation by becoming so dependent on Russian oil with Nord Stream 2 and so forth, right? Exactly. And they were, they were laughing at him. So this was kind of like this, look at how, how silly the president looks kind of thing. It was sent to me because, you know, obviously he was right. And anybody, I think, with half a brain could look at that and think, wow, this is probably a bad idea, right? Where are we at now, two years later, with respect to these supply chains? Well, again, just a little bit of historical background. Um, Deng Xiaoping, who I mentioned earlier in connection with the decision to give the biological warfare program the mission of destroying the United States so it could be colonized by China, had the famous insight that back in 1991, when the Soviet Union ultimately came down, thanks to Ronald Reagan's strategy, that he said, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union is over, the Soviets lost. A new Cold War has begun between the United States and China, and China will win. He began with that premise in mind, the implementation of something that has come to be called, and you've talked about it a lot over the years, as have I, the hide and bide strategy, whereby the Chinese were going to conceal their determination to destroy the United States under the false pretense that they just want to be a partner with us. They just want to be a a member of the international community. They want to enrich their people, and as they did, that they would become, you know, more integrated into the world community, and we thought more like us. A key piece of which was having the U.S. business sector open up its technology, open up its business operations, open up its most sensitive proprietary information, most especially such that over time, biding their time, the Chinese would be able to destroy our industrial base, most of our supply chains, certainly the independence that we had in virtually every area initially, and move all of those supply chains and the stuff that goes into them to China. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier, Jan, about the business community being all about it. But they were supported in doing so by the government, which was essentially of the view that, hey, these are guys that are now part of our team. Initially it was, and my old boss Scoop Jackson was a big fan of this idea, that initially they were the people who were going to help us defeat the Soviet Union. Well, not so much, as it happens. But after the Soviets were gone, and this is my point about why these guys have become vastly more dangerous than the Soviets ever were, was because Xi uh, Deng, excuse me, Xi's predecessor, understood 
that by getting the United States completely dependent upon China, they would have a degree of resilience against the kind of punishment that Reagan meted out to the Soviets that ultimately resulted in their destruction. That engagement would, in short, be a guarantee that at least until such time as the Chinese were able to destroy us, we would be unable, and certainly unwilling, to contemplate destroying them. So to this point, supply chain dependencies are as persistent today as they have ever been, even though what we have been witnessing of late is the Chinese beginning inexorably to reduce what's flowing into those supply chains. I had a conversation with our friend Gordon Chang moments ago in which he talked about the fact that this is something that they are doing to make themselves more independent of everybody else. Food, energy, medicines, you know, personal protective equipment, rare earth minerals, steel, everything you need for war, in short. They are now hoarding and husbanding and making less and less available chips to the rest of the world. And yet, despite Donald Trump's best efforts, Peter Navarro's concerted efforts to begin onshoring those supply chains again, we've done precious little of it. And we still are at the mercy of the Chinese. You mentioned medicines. We don't manufacture penicillin, for God's sake, in this country to say nothing of a lot of other elements of medicines of which we critically depend. It's hard to get your head around the horribles that could flow from the kind of dependencies that we continue to have and the vulnerabilities that arise from them. It's not as though you have to conjure this up or interpret. It's there in black and white as the doctrine of the Chinese Communist Party. Frank, I'm getting uh, the signal here that we're going to have to that we're going to have to wrap. I, I would love to talk to you for hours longer. Um, in short, you do actually provide some solutions to this very difficult scenario that you're portraying here. A key part of this book, which is available now for free as a downloadable PDF at ccpatwar.com has as part of its, you know, sort of what do we do about this war, a series of recommendations which are now part and parcel of the brief, which we are trying to put in front of as many candidates for elective office as possible over the next three months. Because as you know, for the next three months, all of those candidates at least have to profess they're interested in what you're concerned about. After November, not so much, but for the next three months it matters. So we're anxious, frankly, to have the help of your audience in getting this brief in front of as many of them as we can. They can find out how to get information about doing that at that same website, ccpatwar.com. But we have six recommendations. I won't give you all of them. But the basic point is we need to understand the nature of this enemy, that it is a transnational organization and it must be treated as such. We need to disengage 
from this mortal enemy. The supply chain and other dependencies is a formula for our destruction, absolutely unquestionably. We need to rebuild our military, which at the moment is neither situated nor capable of dealing with the kind of threat that we have helped the Chinese military become. That has to be remedied as the matter of the utmost urgency, including most immediately, of course, in dealing with this threat to Taiwan and to us that arises from what they're doing now to Taiwan. We need as well, I think, to cut off what I said is, I think, the most serious of our self-inflicted vulnerabilities. The financing that we are providing to the Chinese Communist Party that is enabling all of this. Every American, and there's about 160 million of us, we reckon, who has money in the U.S. capital markets today, must say to their financial managers, their pension fund managers, the people who are handling their investments, I don't want my money invested in Chinese Communist Party companies, period. Get it out of there. Do it while you still can, by the way. And as you say, it's not that easy, but to the extent one can, make your investments patriotically. And by the way, a colleague of mine, Kevin Freeman, has a training program. If your financial manager can't figure out how to do this or doesn't think it's advisable, go to nsic.org to find a training program that can either help you get them equipped to give you this kind of assistance or get you a different financial manager who will. Well, Frank Gaffney, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure is truly mine. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Frank Gaffney and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Thank you.